I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program. Welcome, everyone, to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Allspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset. Just log into Allspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today, we have with us the co-founder of Hyperkinetic Studios, which is an independent game developer that makes products and services for mobile and web-based platforms, including VR experiences for Blade Runner, Spider-Man, Ghostbusters, Sonic the Hedgehog, goes on and on, and the award-winning Epic Tavern. So, here to talk about the life of an indie game developer is their co-founder and chief creative officer of Hyperkinetic, Tomo, ladies and gentlemen, give an emoji round of applause for the man. Tomo. What's happening, Tomo? Yeah. Um, maybe too much. <laughs> Things have been very interesting this year. Is that, is, is that because the studio is super busy or is it uh, other, other factors? It's partially that. Um, I think 2021 has uh, had a lot of personal stuff, uh, a lot of interesting reflections on how the world works, um, and uh, kind of diving into the, like, we've done VR projects in the past, but kind of the presence of VR social is um, not quite the same. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah, I, I love that. So I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I was actually a, a present when you made your very first step into alt space and we're checking out the social VR uh, platform. And I, I remember you saying, oh, wow, look at your, your hands is, a, is sort of a new vector with which you can communicate. And to be honest, I've done, this is episode, I think, 68 or something like that. I still haven't mastered what to do with my hands. They kind of go, sometimes they drift across the stage. Sometimes they're just sitting in my, you know, by my side. I don't know. Have you been able to figure out what to do with your hands yet? I think the last time I was in, in one of these spaces, I was trying to see how long I can maintain the closed hands and then kind of hold them at my side and then only intentionally move them and try to puppeteer what a hand could be doing and being really conscious of at least the, the four states I could put to the into. Right. Uh, but no. Is the real answer <laughs> right? Right. Um, um, and I don't know if that goes for anyone here. It looks I, actually Victor looks like he's doing quite nicely. He's crossing his hands very politely in front of us. He knows what he's doing. And then of course, if you're in two D, your hands are always by your side, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, but uh, we've got uh, some wonderful audience here. Thanks, Sabrina, Sean, French, Victor. Of course, our wonderful moderator, Futurosity, a hero. If anyone has any questions, uh, please do use the raise hand option through every segment. We'll let uh, some audiences have some uh, questions or some uh, even if just comments or whatever so click on the raise hand option and then we will take your question from that but unfortunately we do have to mute you for the uh, podcast so um, so here we are you're a game developer we're in social VR and I, I right before the show you're talking and you're like you know this next uh, generation probably Game development is one aspect of what they may be interested in but now with the metaverse and social VR there's a whole other world that's opening. Um, how do you how do you think about that? I mean, well, right now I'm just thinking about it a lot, right? I'm just going for volume to try to absorb so many lessons, and there, you know, maybe many of the lessons to learn just standing in here. Well, standing may not be the right word, but being here and kind of feeling what it's like to be in these virtual spaces 
you know, it, it's kind of helping me rethink what it's like to be in virtual spaces in general. And by virtual, I just mean like any game experience, right? Any place where you're transporting your imagination. Um, you know, there's something naked about this that uh, in a lot of ways I really wasn't expecting. You know, I've been in VR, you know, in, I played a number of VR games. We, we've done a decent amount of work in VR. And it was always a little on the clinical side. Mm. And somehow, you know, going to one meeting the where, where it's in alt space uh, was like this instantly transformative event where suddenly I'm like realizing that, um, you know, thinking about it from an interactivity first standpoint uh, is totally missing the mark somehow. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I like to style myself as thinking about user experience or human experience first, um, but that's not, that's not what we design. Like we design interactions, we design feedback, we design stimulus. Um, and so, so much of the kind of professional framework of what I do is set in really in the context of, you know, late 90s North American consoles and mm. controllers with two uh, analog sticks. Mm. Um, and yeah, we've had a lot of time to adapt, but you know, I kind of needed this splash of cold water in my face. It wasn't cold. It was warm and nice, actually, but a splash <laughs> right. of water in my face to kind of shake myself away from some of those premises and really, you know, I think on the surface, you could look around and see a kind of a simplistic world. And um, just think about what all the things you could do to improve the look of the simplistic world. Um, and I think that's why the meeting context for me really, uh, oh, I accidentally activated something. Cool, cool, never mind. <laughs> for me, it allowed me to kind of make an end run around kind of my organized perspective and really start thinking about what it's like to have people together in a virtual space and how, and we should really be thinking about making that more interesting. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and it's 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 interesting because I, you know, I come from the the film side of things where it's literally just a two D image that's not interactable. So I'm like, I feel like my technology that I've come from is a step further back than yours. At least yours is interactable. But I always thought that you know I was born a time that the personal computer came to be. So like the very first Apple, and so that's sort of my uh, home medium, I guess you'd say. And then I look at my niece and I, you know, I got my first VR headset at the time that my niece was born. And I'm like, she's never going to look at a screen that's not interactable. She looks at me on FaceTime and I'm talking with her. I'm saying her name. Then she's going to be into VR and she's going to be interacting with all of these worlds. And so I can't imagine when that, when the, the next generation that is natively brought up with VR as a part of their life, what they're going to come up with is, is something probably we can't even imagine yet, but. It's really interesting to think about. Yeah, I don't think we can imagine it yet. Right. Although what will be charming is if way in the future, occasionally they innovate and just do what we are doing right now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so we have a, you have a really impressive uh, list of, of things we're going to get into here. Uh, but before we do all of that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to our wonderful origin story. Uh, so maybe we can find out, um, you know, how uh, Tomo, the man before us, uh, came to be, how he got into gaming, how then he got into VR, and then we can get into uh, hyperkinetic after that. Awesome, yeah, you know, it's interesting you asked that. It's been a long time since I've dug up the origin story, actually. Hmm. You know, back, back in the early days of Treyarch, when I talk about how I got into the game industry, I would always say that, well, I was a failed Asian math nerd, 
and, uh, you know, wasn't a fan of doing homework. <laughs> that kind of set me down a certain path. Uh, I loved games. I loved RPGs. I loved science fiction and I love video games. Um, and somehow all that pushed me down the path of becoming an art major at Long Beach State. And uh, I went to art school basically forever. Like, uh, I think in the end it was like almost nine years. <laughs> um, and towards the end of that nine years, I ran into the founders of Treyarch. Uh, they were friends of friends. And we hit it off. And, you know, I never stopped playing games. And maybe in hindsight, this is only maybe because it's hard to really, it's hard to recall the truth of old memories. Um, but maybe I had remembered or somehow organized or some paid enough attention to my outrageous amount of video game playing hours. And I somehow was able to leverage that um, and appeared maybe smarter. Because <laughs> uh, that's somewhere in there is how it started. I kind of stopped going to school and started doing 3D modeling in Lightwave uh, with at Treyarch when it was less than 11 people. Mm. Um, they were working on a game called Die by the Sword. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and I completely didn't care. <laughs> and um, from that point, you know, you start getting actual development lessons and you start, you know, staying up all night working on interactive stuff and trying to put together things and uh before you know it you have uh, a functioning experience in making software mm. um and then you know i think it was that was in 1997 mm, wow uh and i never went back to school i do not have a, a college degree as a side effect of that decision yeah. um and really i mean it was only just a couple years later that um, getting jobs in the game industry started to become progressively more difficult. Hmm. And there was a lot more excitement and a lot more demand to get in the game industry. And, you know, just, you know, the 19-year-olds the, the that wanted in, when they were 17-year-olds, I think that covers sort of the origin story. Yeah. I mean, I had a good yeah. run. My early career was a good and one. And so... Uh, lots of... Project. Right. And so then, so what was your, so what were your first jobs? You, you, I think it was there like a, did you get jobs at a bigger studio first before you went out on your own or? Uh, I was at Treyarch for nine uh, years about uh, kind of culminating in uh, a creative director position on the Spider-Man two game in 2004. Oh, wow. Back when you couldn't say back when you said Xbox one, because you meant the first Xbox and um, <laughs> uh Trollbot remembers that. <laughs> I did a little bit of freelancing and um, had a kid. And obviously, I mean, having the kid was had a real big impact. Um, and then I was at EA for a few years and worked on a game called Boom Blocks, and then the Medal of Honor 2010 title. Wow. Um, and then I went, and then I was, I did a lot more kind of consulting and freelancing. And then I found an intersection with a few buddies and we started Hypertrophic Studios. Right. And so were you, would you say that you, because you started in the arts uh, with an arts background, do you say that you gravitated towards more the, the visual aspect of things or, or the technical aspect of things? Where was your more specialty or where's your comfort zone? You know, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, I got into the arts because of sort of abandoning sort of conventional academics, even though like, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of physics and 
you know, eventually I came to enjoy math quite a bit. Um, so in a, in a lot of ways, art, arts was my entry point into making games, but what it allowed me to do was kind of get back to my origins, which is rules and kind of technical systems and games in general, just playing, learning rules, understanding how mastery works, I guess, and really enjoying that. Right. And so I, it took a couple years. By the end of the first couple years, I was firmly entrenched in the game design department. Shortly after that, a lead design position, and after that, a creative direction, direction position. Got it. Right. And so then, so you know, it's it's a big it's a big leap to to go out on your own and and uh, co-found a company. Um, how did you meet your your co-founders, and how did you find the courage to just go for it? I think I'm sure that there's some you know I, game developers here or, or aspiring game developers here who may be interested to know how do you take that leap. I think part of the problem is how to take the leap for me was many years of game development and a false sense of confidence that made sense. And what I mean by that is it never really makes sense to start a company. Mm -hmm. But that means that it always made about the same amount of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that if I could, I would have done it earlier. But I would have been too scared if I actually went back in time or if I just imagined myself back then. Um, even if it seems scary, the amount you learn by being out there on your own, where the buck stops and starts with you, um, it's enormous. There's, there's no substitute for perspective you gain when you can do whatever you want. You'll simply will be given feedback as to how effective you are. Uh, and that feedback may be harsh because you know, it comes in the form of, of kind of like, concrete marketplace results right. um you can't really escape those uh but but at the same time because you can't escape them they're really good lessons <laughs> and uh so i've learned more in the last seven and eight and a half years uh than you know well, i learned different things but i i learned a lot and a lot of the things i learned in the last years i couldn't have learned in the 15 years before right right and so um and so, yeah, Trollbot agrees, and, uh, and and I'm sure that um, a lot of people agree. So, uh, how did so how did you find or how did you uh, grow to trust to to have co-founders, and how did you uh, come together um, and decide to start a, a, your own company? You know, it's interesting. I feel like um, three of us co-founders we had all worked at Treyarch um, back in the early 2000s, and then. Um, through the mid 2000s, we just went our different, or went our separate ways. Had kind of our own, each our own kind of later careers, and just kind of ended up looping back together and finding an intersection where we were all coming off work or had the possibility to try to start something uh, expected, I guess. Um, you know, something that kind of tied us all together was that we all had a lot of friends in the game industry. We've all been around a long time. Um, and maybe, actually, maybe a better way of describing it is we all had five plus years of really being committed to networking and expanding kind of the, the body of people we know and really kind of caring about it. Uh, you know, I wasn't the most social guy 25 years ago, um, but 
now it doesn't matter if I was or wasn't, uh, you know, we have to be sort of, uh, can't, can't do great things alone. And so need to need to party up with other adventures. Right. Absolutely. And so just curious, and also for those aspiring gamer, uh, game developers out there, you know, you're saying that it's really important. How important is it to get that base of, you know, when you're working at these other bigger companies, you have, uh, resources to be able to meet people and to get to know people. How important is that? Do you think through the process or do you think you'll, when you, if you went out on your own without that background, you would just make it happen? So naturally, you know, a lot of years in the industry where I got a chance to kind of organically get to know a lot of people, you know, often, at least for sure, the people whose cubicles were next to mine and or whoever was reporting to me directly, that made it easier. That meant I didn't have to be as courageous meant I didn't have to get out of my comfort zone as much. And honestly, uh, that's probably a disadvantage of sorts. Uh, once you habituate getting out of your comfort zone, you're, you're on the accelerated path. I mean, you're going to start figuring things out and kind of lapping your kind of nearby friends or, or whatever. And um, I mean, I just, I do not think you have to establish yourself first start to make you to explore out there you should be exploring now mm -hmm. and yeah i mean i'm not saying abandon things like skills development and professional development from like a knowledge standpoint um but if you think that some point you'll accumulate enough to be comfortable kind of overcome social discomfort that's a hard fallacy <laughs> mm -hmm. right right um, great. Well, if anyone had any thoughts or questions about the origin story before we move on, just please do use the raise hand option. Um, the last uh, piece of this puzzle I would like to ask is, okay, so you started hyperkinetic, you kind of got the adrenaline running, you're, you've now, you've removed the safety net. What's that first kind of contract that you got that must have been, you know, locked in your memory forever? Um, and, and, and how did that feel? It's so funny, you know, it, it wasn't terribly dramatic. Uh, we had a friend, uh, they had moved out of the game industry and were part of the, um, uh, an East coast community college network. And they needed a very rudimentary microscope app and, uh, a very small contract, but that's what we were looking for because, you know, we, the studio was called hyperkinetic studios, but my joke is always that we're slow and careful. <laughs> right. Right. So one of the first things we wanted to verify was, do you know how to work together anymore? remember what it was like 15 years ago or maybe like 10 ish years ago um but we kind of need to establish the new way of things we need to figure out what each of our strengths and weaknesses are um kind of on the specific uh so it was we hired one contract engineer and about making a very very straightforward microscope education um app for web and tablet. got it Great. So I need to get a straw next time I do a drink in VR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I well, I, we have cocktails. We could get you some cocktails. I'm sure. I have a you know a sort of Blade Runner esque uh, you know ramen ramen bar over there. We should get some beers and uh, afterwards awesome. or something like that. <laughs> um, but um, all right. So so let's talk about hyperkinetic. I gave a tiny little spiel at the beginning. I'm sure you could say it better. What does hyperkinetic do, and uh, what do you bring to the world? you know, we had a lot of difficulty at first trying to find 
what we were, what we should be broadcasting as our identity. Um, it took us a few years to really recognize that we started a company so that we can get involved in interesting stuff. That's the simplest way to describe it. Uh, and that we intended to leverage our relationships, our, our fairly robust network of friends and our skills, get ourselves involved in things that were unexpected and things we're going to learn a lot about, problems that we didn't know how to solve yet. Uh, we were basically just, even if we were kind of getting on in years, we were chomping at the bit to kind of get ourselves into trouble, basically, mm -hmm. trying to solve problems. Um, I think that's what, that's what kind of fueled all of our passions. And, uh, and, and, and we picked up a number of people who had kind of like similar outlook. Um, if I talk, if, you know, simple, and I think you need the simple answer. The simple answer is that I work for higher software development. And for the most part, we are willing to do almost anything. I mean, if it's obviously too straightforward, you could probably find someone else to do it more that it's more efficient perhaps to use a different developer. Um, and, you know, uh, having a lot of veteran game developer friends meant many of the projects we picked up were kind of firefighting projects. So we sort of developed a little bit of a name for ourselves as um, emergency um, kind of developer mm. assisting, uh, you know, someone to go along with a crisis. <laughs> there comes the, there comes the hyperkinetic part of the name where it's like, who do we call, <laughs> you know, when we have a trouble, um, got it. So then, and how, and when did you start branching into the VR aspects of things? How early were you in on that? So, you know, we were, we were on board for VR right from the get-go. Um, I think, Actually, eight and a half years ago, you know, like many of our peers, we had a little bit of hesitancy about what we thought the long-term prospects of VR were going to, uh, and we were kind of, you know, a little floored by, you know, the billions of dollars that Facebook spent. Um, before long, there were a lot of potential um, projects that were VR-related, and um, you no, know, we had no qualms with that at all. Uh, it was super interesting, and you know, we always loved how. But I, from the very beginning, what I loved about VR is uh, somehow it's, it's a thing that isolates your senses. And at the same time, it's like, I feel like math of it looks like it's a great opportunity to connect, right? And so that, that, that contradiction I always loved. Um, yeah, we, got, we probably got a first VR project in our third year, maybe. Oh, wow. And about five um, years ago or so. That was. I think it was the, I think it was the, it was the Spider-Man homecoming one. Got it. You know, in a lot of these cases, we did not do the whole project, we just would partner up and we take on pieces, uh, inevitably get at least somewhat involved in the strategy or at least as much as, you know, the client would allow us to. Um, and then, and then we had, and we do whatever is necessary to get the second. Got it. Yeah, because I imagine there would be, you know, a lot of overlap, but some new tools that you'd have to employ to uh, take a 2D image into a 3D, um, you know, immersive world. Um, did you find that uh, bridge difficult or was it more uh, easier than you thought it would be? I think by the time we started, so many of our peers 
had either done it before and or like fully committed their studios to VR, it was a, a fairly straightforward transition. You know, uh, a lot of the tools were were well known and therefore like well described. There were tons of good resources. Um, kind of our favorite method of learning stuff is hunting down our buddies that do it and getting their story. And um, that's been a very effective way to approach almost any kind of problem solving, at least first. And uh, and VR was no different. Got it. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's get into some of your projects. But of course, if anyone here has any questions or thoughts, let us know. How's it going, XPS or Chris and thanks, Sabrina and uh, Cornelius. Nice to see you again. Trollbot, a uh, bunch of people. If anyone has anything, uh, please uh, please do let us know. And now let's get into some of the uh, some of the blockbusters you've been involved with. Very interesting. Um, so first off, we have here Mr. Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man smashing through what I assume is New York City here. So, so um, how did this project come to be and, and what it was your involvement in that? So in the end, my involvement on this particular project was fairly minimal. In a lot of these cases, especially for these big VR ones, we would kind of, you know, we'd have uh, communications with the, uh, the people running the projects and you know, we'd have a little bit of you know, strategy discussion, uh, a little bit of kind of like high-level creative discussion, but the vast majority of the work was usually accelerating the timetable from a technological standpoint and or kind of fast hands with respect to getting assets in and kind of moving the project towards getting shipped as, in as quick a time frame as possible. Got it. Um, especially in this case, I think we had a really um, almost a, a, a significant engineering exposure to the project and um and, and a moderate amount maybe uh our asset development and um um some amount of uh our direction like assistance got it i guess that's a good thing i don't know how how big is hyperkinetics it sounds like you're a nice small nimble uh company that can um move rather quickly as opposed to one of the big modelists that has to is like a titanic moving the direction are you guys Oh, for sure. I, I think, you know, one of the things I was saying before about how essential kind of our friend network is to us, we've, we've been able to scale up and scale down fairly quickly uh, over the years. And um, so small as we've been, of course, is three when it was just us three founders. But shortly after that, we got to around the seven or eight size. And then ever since, we fluctuated from that kind of from like around. And maybe our peak was at 25 bodies, depending on the number of projects we have. Um, it's been no stretch of three months has been like any other three months. Basically. All right. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sure that's exciting. And, and there's a, a stress involved with that, too. But the stress always comes out with, with, uh, with good benefits and good things, I'm sure. Um, all right. So let's definitely, although this coping mechanisms are really important. Yeah. <laughs> what's your do you have a coping mechanism you'd like to share yeah you know it's weird but i think my most effective stress coping mechanism for me is to dive into a project hmm. and kind of shut out all the other noise and make progress and i say that it's worth noting that in the course of 2021, that's been one of the trickier things to actually get a hold of. Um, but it's like sort of like um, 
like a, a video game that you don't stop playing for the hour straight. Um, kind of vibe if I can get that going on on any given project. That's usually it. Strangely, that tracks from the stress. And it's partially because so much of startup is real stressor for all of you out there. Real stressor, uncertainty. And right. uh, things like a big pile of work is going to look very tame compared right. to an ocean of possibility. Mm, a big chunk of which has to be dangerous. <laughs> right. I totally get that. That totally makes sense to me. Um, cool. All right. So let's let's move on to the next one here. So I bet you mentioned Homecoming. So this is a, a pretty big project. I guess at that time, Spider-Man was a Sony uh, IP, I assume. So you were working yeah. with working with the studios. This is a, a major project. I'm sure there was many people involved. Um, but um, how were you involved in that one? And, and, uh, and how is Hyperkinetic, you know, taking it to the next level? Oh, you know, this was a this was a VR experience that was connected to the movie, and um, uh, it was a uh, it was like a a three D art house that was contracted to do the uh, to do the experience. And again, it's a similar story. We got sucked in because uh, they wanted to do more. And um, you know, there's a another thing worth noting is that back in 2004, that Spider Man Two project. I worked on was kind of ran. Uh, I got enormous amount of experience with Spider-Man, and um, uh, what the person that kind of connect that we connected to them through uh, was well aware of that, and so that became mm -hmm. part of the conversation. Just kind of what do we do with Spider-Man? How does Spider-Man work? And it was kind of one of my early experiences with kind of VR in a professional standpoint. So I was kind of trying to wrap my mind around all the things that you know, I was trying to do in Spider-Man 2, which was to make you feel more sick in a lot of ways. I mean, that's not exactly what I was thinking, but it kind of practically mm -hmm. seemed that way. And that has to be totally the opposite in this kind of VR experience. You've got to be really careful. And, um, you know, where it was, the experience was not super expansive. It was fairly limited, but it was trying to mimic the kind of dynamic sort of swinging experience that kind of mm. gravity pulling on you while you're connected to a web that's connected to a building or something. Mm. Um, and so that was a ton of fun to talk about. Um, again, in the end, we did a lot of kind of pickup engineering and a lot of art assets to kind of get across the finish line, you know, along the way, a lot of conversations to kind of help them kind of see as much as we could see in terms of what what the best of spider-man was or could be mm -hmm. um that i guess and, and that was definitely before the uh insomniac game came out which that's that's a an, it, it's it's a real important game that an insomniac game that came out with spider-man right yeah uh, finally kind of recreated the flying through the uh the open city in a way I guess at least the fans thought finally exceeded Superman 2's right. in Yeah, you know, I guess a lot of these earlier projects were, were shorter too, right? Because it was like that was sort of what the tech could uh, hold at that time. That's what the headsets could hold. People were getting vertigo a lot, so they could only go in for short periods of time. And then it was just so expensive and there was no uh, not as big of an audience for it, so they couldn't make back their money. So they were almost like these these demos that we're doing. Is that, is, is that like how long was the this homecoming uh, experience in the end? I mean, I think it was fairly short. I think we're talking like minutes, maybe. Right. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and that I think what what you're what, what we're seeing with this phenomenon and the um, uh, Ghostbusters project is that uh, movie studios would have um, promotional budgets that a a a kind of limited VR experience, the development for a VR experience could fit inside. Yeah. And this was also in a time frame when you know the number of headsets out there, like this whole this whole thing where the Oculus Go is out there to the tunes of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of units. I, have we hit, do you think they've hit 3 million units out there yet? Uh, and the Oculus Quest 2? I don't know the numbers necessarily. Probably. The Oculus Go is kind of going by the wayside, but the, the Quest... I mean Quest. Sorry. Yeah, the Quest 2, I think, has exceeded expectations and is, has, they've doubled what they thought they would uh, as far as sales go, I think. And I think, so, the end of 2019, that's, that's when VR... Kind of in a lot of ways from the public standpoint that's when it was born so all the work we did before that i mean i like to describe it as like the biggest public research grant in the history of mankind mm. because you have these big players pumping a lot of money into developing all kinds of experiments and just trying to get the like hunting for the knowledge that's going to secure uh an important position today mm -hmm. And that's what was happening five, six years ago, seven years yeah. ago. Um, and it was really interesting to watch because for the longest time, you know, my faith in VR was just had to be realistically sort of neutral. And uh, the thing that I liked the most about VR was just how many of my friends' paychecks it was covering. <laughs> um, yeah. Now it's abundantly clear that uh, uh, it's going to get it's going to get to everybody. It's, gonna, it's totally Absolutely. happening. <laughs> And and in the midst of maybe some of those chaotic real life events my life has ever seen, right? Yeah, and the pandemic didn't didn't slow things down either. That sort of accelerated everything and got got <laughs> VR moving rather quickly as well. So, um, yeah. I feel like the, the pandemic was like squeezing the water balloons yeah. hole in its or whatever was inside it really far yeah. out. Yeah, absolutely. And then and then and then Zuckerberg comes out and says, Oh, we're a metaverse company now. And everyone's like, wait a minute, what's a metaverse? And now they're like, we gotta get into the metaverse business. Yeah. Uh so <laughs> here we are. Um all right. So <laughs> totally. <laughs> we got we got one more uh of these bigger uh um franchises before we get into a maybe a more personal project for you and and hyperkinetic. So Blade Runner, of course, we are huge Philip K. Dick fans in our introduction. You heard Philip K. Dick say that we're living in a simulation from 1977. So we're huge fans, of course, of, of Blade Runner. Um, and this must have been for, was this for 2049, Blade Runner 2049 release? But yeah. but it's it, interestingly though I, I noticed that you it's it's the I think it's the Tyrell Corporation from the original from the 1982 version. So were you modeling it off of that? Yeah, actor. Yeah. Uh, it, oh. oh no, totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> with various uh, Atari logos. Um, yeah. No, I mean this is and and this is so much similar vein. Like there was this era of, of these projects, and there were these really high profile movie properties. That, you know, I think not so long ago, it would seem strange to have video game developers involved with. You know, I, the new people of today are never going to have that. Course. They're not going to remember what it was like that when, when games and movies kind of didn't mix. Yeah. Um, right. yeah this, this, project, this project was cooler. But like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Blade Runner. Um, right. You know, something worth mentioning across these other projects, even if, um, I wasn't the hands uh, involved in various 
um, hinges and or fixes. Um, I did I did try to take liberties with interacting with a, a kind of giving direction to, to anyone on our side that was on the project. But this one, though, ultimately we did it was vastly more art related. Um, it was it was basically a need to accelerate the uh, asset development and integration for this project, and so we got involved with that. There, uh, it was uh, it was exciting. You know, it's like inevitably when you're building spaces in VR, it's not always the most complicated like asset work. Uh, it really requires kind of like careful attention paid to kind of not have like a um, you know, inappropriate interactions with things. You know, we have to have like a little bit of more of a mind strategy of how things are going to look. Um, you know, I feel like uh, when you get to sign like sort of like really high fidelity. Um, oh, did my hand in it? Yeah, the, the hand did um, a close really up. The hand was like, I'm the star of the show here. I want to be at a close up. <laughs> we called him out and now he's getting revenge. But yeah, this, this, um, High fidelity console work never had to question that because everything was kind of in some ways maybe over detailed. And um, so you didn't really have to think about whether something was going to fit with something else so much. Uh, but I think in VR, that's almost always the issue. You know, that you can easily be surprised how, how something that you expected to look a certain way just, just does not match. It stands out like a weird sore thumb. And mm. Once you once you notice it, then you have to kind of sit down and analyze why. And mm. Those lessons have been really interesting. Mm. You know, where you're like, it's not because this one has too much detail. It's because this one's kind of like the way in which the texture map was handled is just fundamentally too noisy in the space, or something along those lines. These mm. are some of the fun lessons I think projects. Right. Crazy. Yeah, I would love to be flying through the alley here to the IRL Corporation. I'm going to have to hunt that one down. Are they available, by the way, if anyone in <laughs> listening or watching wanted to um, play one of these or experience one of them? I think, I'm not sure. I think at least two of them are available on PSVR Store. Hmm. Right. While, you know, we would develop and you know, we would have whatever kits were necessary for the project at the time, but we, you know, we've, I think we've had something like, like 80 or 90 projects in the last nine-ish years or yeah. so. Um, and we've gone through so many different engines and so many different platforms. And we don't, obviously, I don't have every single one of those platforms. Um, right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Suckers are available on the uh, the PlayStation Store. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, I, the next one I know is available on Steam. So uh, I mean, may or may not have somebody here who is also involved in that, uh, Mr. Uh, Sean French. I'm looking at you. Um, so uh, and uh, hello, Mistress Flowers back there in, in Roar. Come on in. And if anyone has a, a comment or question for anything moving uh, that we've just talked about, please do use the raise hand option. Otherwise, we will get to something that I think uh, you guys seem to have a, a, a massive involvement with, and that is Epic Tavern. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about course, that and your develop, uh, your um, you know, involvement on that one. Yeah, so Epic Tavern is the one game that we made internally at Hyperbole right. Studio. So about five-ish years ago, decided that we were doing well enough that we give it a shot. The way the project 
doesn't have a client is heavier right. <laughs> from month to month than the other projects. Um, but it is, it is a, it is a interactive experience that we are very, very committed to. Uh, we've been putting a lot of energy into it over the years, and um, yeah, it's this. I'll start by saying we bit off more than we can. <laughs> I think that we had a lot of confidence, and we wanted to make, kind of wanted to systematize and disassemble storytelling, and we we're going to do it in the context of sort of fantasy adventure, and um, sort of kind of like try to play play against all of the well-known tropes that so many of us nerds have lived between the, the computer RPGs, the tabletop RPGs, literature, movies, television. Um, our, our kind of nerddom has been like soaked in these fantasy stories. And so we go, well, I think it's, it's the most present of the kind of storytelling worlds and, and sort of and adventures something we already know a lot of the kind of pieces that we need to break it down into. And so let's go about making a storytelling machine uh, and we'll, we'll set it around uh, collecting many adventures together, putting them in groups and sending them out on these sort of Dungeons and Dragons like quests. Um, now on the surface, as long as we kind of stick to this RPG format, it seemed sort of straightforward. We just wanted to, more on the written work and we wanted to cover more than just combat say and we wanted like not you to be you could be you but that all the characters in the story are not you i think that for us that was an important step to take and so let me just describe the kind of vibe of the experience you the person that runs a tavern in a fantasy world bay or partly because it's like beer <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, this fantasy tavern that you run is ultimately the crossroads where all of the great heroes are going to intersect with the great or important stories of that world. And so your position sitting astride that those crossroads is one of sort of selection and cultivation. So you're bringing people together and finding the kind of leads on these quests and kind of choosing who goes together to accomplish what and kind of a mechanical level there's like all this like you know combat skills and social skills and mind skills and survival skills and all these uh kind of obstacles to overcome all through the sort of universal word Re you read a lot in epic tavern and so there's this a lot of this kind of um hunks of words that set up obstacles and eye rolls that occur that test skills mm -hmm. and then overcoming those obstacles and seeing what happens and sometimes not overcoming them. So kind of our sort of almost academic approach to trying to disassemble storytelling, you know, there are these things that we kind of came to realize had really important roles to play in the game where failure has to be tolerated mm. by the player. It can't be like your conventional game where you succeed, succeed, fail, erase the failure, go back to the last mm. succeed, succeed, done and finish this kind of perfect story mm. of the stories are more dramatic when you have failures to overcome, you have setbacks. And, um, you know, we had it felt, felt committed to this idea that we wanted to kind of 
spread this uh, approach to storytelling to our audience. And um, before I continue, I'll just say we've been doing that for quite some time now, and it's obviously been dominating, especially Sean's. Sean, Sean, Sean French, front and center. There he is. Maybe, maybe Sean could say a word or two about his process. I believe that he said he's one of the writers, or he's the writer of uh, all this, uh, all these yeah. words that you're speaking of. So, <laughs> Sean wants to say something. Please feel free to jump in. There, uh, you know, you obviously did a great job. You've won a bunch of awards for it. You won the PAX 10 2019 award. You've got the Indie Games Award from 2018. So obviously, it's uh, struck a nerve, and people are, are impressed with it. There's a few things that I, I saw online. I was uh, I, I was wondering if you could clear up. Like, so what does it mean when you say it's a management RPG? So I think what we were trying to avoid was the conventional RPG. The player plays a character loosely speaking. Sometimes maybe you play a part of, but even so, kind of model of computer game RPG is is one of player occupying the role of the character. And in the context of Epic Tavern, you don't occupy the role of any of them. I see. Other than the one who runs. I see. Got it. So your role to play with the characters that are going to kind of, with their hands, get in the fights and overcome the obstacles, survive the elements and solve their puzzles, is one of, you have a relationship. Uh, you get to kind of learn their story, know their story, you guide them down the path. Uh, but you are not kind of occupying them they aren't your avatar interesting they're, they're kind of like um family members you keep track of i see <laughs> another side effect of that that that's also heavily related to this desire to make or induce players to tolerate failure and there are many characters now bad things can happen to some of them and it's not the same as if just me i get my arm chopped off or something that's Kind of a tough spot to move forward from and not only that you'd have to kind of you know whole engine of the game would need to somehow appreciate that because so many games are about moving around and interacting in the 3d world um again partly why we moved a heavy word-based universal encounter system that that is kind of reliant on us kind of activating the player's imagination through uh, as short a number of words as is reasonably got it I got it. Okay, so um, this is this next slide here is. I, I thought this was really interesting too. Um, so you have a comic book based oh, yeah. based on the game. So Epic Tavern's Tales for the Fantastical Crimes Unit is that. And there was one interesting thing I saw, which is that um, actually hidden within the comic are clues to unlocking bonus content in the game. So I love the cross pollination of of different mediums there. Um, can you? Uh, how how did that yeah, come? About? I think oh, yeah. So. Sean has made a comic book in the past, and he edits many comics, and he's kind of active in the comic book industry. And so he had it just he had the right amount of knowledge for us to kind of get involved. And really, he did the lion's share of the work. He wrote the script up and found the artist, a name Steve Mardo, uh, and the colorist, uh, Steve Levine from TMNT fame from way back when. Mm. Um, and we had already generated so much story content. Um, I think strategizing how the comic book story sort of fits in with the world. We don't really want we don't really say that, you know, Tales from the Fantastical Crime Unit is based on the game. Rather, it's drawn from the same and, and you know, kind of explores some of the same characters. Um, and, and as much as possible, we kind of imagine 
but for myself, watching this in action was enormously illuminating, you know. Um, and I highly recommend it for everyone, anyone else to kind of understand, like, you, you, let's say you have your art form, right? And it's something that you're passionate about and you do a lot of practice. Figure out at least one or as many other art forms and how they are together. What are the things that the people that make those uh, products, what are the things that are stressing them out? What are the things that they have to consider to get the message across to their audience? Because those lessons are really powerful points of view that are different from your own. Mm -hmm. And I know already I've been able to kind of like, triangulate on insights that I was not able to do before we had made progress in this content. Mm. So from a storytelling standpoint, it's, it's it, in so many ways, it's just kind of refining and fleshing out our own understanding of how to make Epic Tavern the best that it could be. Mm. I mean, we're in a, in a sort of straightforward way, we intend to have maybe panels of art in the game show up for kind of reboosting of bits and pieces of the storytelling. But that just kicks open a door that says, what are all the other forms out there? that we could be kind of learning lessons from and adapting into this storytelling machine that we're trying to build. Cool. Cool. Well, well, thank you, Sean French for all of uh, that. The comics looks really cool and, um, and uh, the stories are great as well. So um, it's a great team we've got here. Um, cool. So this, and this game of course uh, is available on steam for anyone listening, they can go and check it out. And is it in full release yet? Is it still uh, in pre-release? How does that work? It is in early access and it's been there for longer than we would have been comfortable with. <laughs> we do hope to get out of it maybe early next year. Um, and that's one of the, one of the things that happens is we bite off more than we can chew or, and, or we're too ambitious. We can't, close the project up as soon as we'd like to and then we have to focus on work for higher gigs to kind of keep the lights on right and any additional bandwidth that we have over goes in that and so been we've been playing a, a juggling balance game with this for a long time although that is not a strange story absolutely and we hope anyone listening will uh, go and support the project and uh what hyperkinetics trying to pull off here so um yeah, please do support your indie indie game devs out there. Um, cool. So, um, you know, I'm sure you've got a, many, many other projects, but we can't keep you all night. Uh, I'm sure you've got a life outside of uh, the metaverse. Uh, so let's just talk for a second about the future. Um, you know, let's with where you hope Hyperkinetic is going and what you've got on the, um, the docket. And then we'll even go beyond that and put on our sci-fi hats. In terms of where this is all headed. Nice. Well, um, I mean, what I'm doing here is kind of a important piece of the puzzle, I think. Like, I don't think I would have been quite as ready for all this without all of our exploration in Epic Tavern. I mean, Epic Tavern turned kind of a lot of our feelings about the story, uh, which, by the way, if, if I wanted to, like, my most reductive description of the story is rules we configure information with so that others can better retain or understand what to a good story just is knows how to arrange itself so you'll remember and by remembering it turns out that emotional resonance is a huge accommodator of being able to remember things better uh dramatic kind of timing and events and surprises those are all things that connect to us making sense of information and that what that really means then is all of the art really focused on 
understanding how humans work. Um, so that that whatever led me to be to say that now, uh, a lot of it had to do with developing Epic Tavern, stressing about Epic Tavern, trying to figure out however we were going to approach the rules of creating that experience on PC. And then the comic book is in development. And then, then I walk into a space like this and then I talk to someone like you and I recognize something about the story. And um, I, haven't, I haven't fully disentangled what this all means yet, but it feels really <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Trollbot, Trollbot agrees. So, um, yeah. So, so do you? So, what is your? What is what is hyperkinetic up to? What are you guys up to next? Uh, you're, uh... you know, one of the things, you know, we inevitably we have a uh, some number of projects that are complicated to talk about, um, and there's always some number of prospective clients that are on the hook, which are super complicated to talk about. Um, one thing I, I do like to talk about is that we are, the project might be, I think it's on break right now for a little bit, but uh, uh, we were working with a scientist who studies um, something called binocular dysfunction. And uh, what binocular dysfunction is, is uh, two eyes and their ability to coordinate. And uh, their ability to coordinate manifests in a very significant way in our ability to read. I need to focus on these super tiny words like a high-speed laser scan very accurately across the page, and then we're able to pull information out of a sliced wood. Mm. Now, if your ability to coordinate your eyes is poor, then when you're a youngster, you might have difficulty reading. The scientist's point of view, um, she is interested in understanding whether or not how much learning dysfunction might be related to this. Because unlike a, a conventional eye exam, which just tests if our eyes are good at focusing on things, this is something that's a little harder to identify. Um, and strangely enough, uh, you know, we had actually interacted with her years ago uh, before VR became a thing. Um, and if you wanted to understand, like, if a person's two eyes were working in a particular way together, uh, being able to focus on each eye individually, like have two screens and a headset, might be pretty useful. And so we've been working on uh, a VR kind of game of sorts to explore this function with her and based on her science and uh, working with grants, which was a little bit new for us, which was really interesting and cool. Um, and it felt, it feels like it might have like a really, if we can come to some good answers, it might be very helpful. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe a large number of people. Absolutely. So actually, so you're using it for science-based and sort of medical-based almost uh, research. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Great. Cool. Um, cool. Well, uh, any other, uh, anything else here for the audience? Uh, no, we got everyone's, uh, everyone's feeling okay. Okay, good. Well, um, don't go anywhere. We got to get a, a big picture uh, with, with Tomo here before you leave. Uh, actually, we do have a utopian. Uh, Let's have uh, what's up, Utopian. Hey, yeah, I was just curious. Uh, I'm I'm a game developer as well as I was. I was wondering what your marketing strategy has been with uh, Epic Tavern. Um, if anything has worked out uh, better than other strategies, it's definitely a concern. It's a necessary evil. It's something I don't want to do, but I know I have to do it. Step one is disabusing yourself of that sentiment. Marketing is essential. Obviously, what you're working on is something you care about. You're getting people to know about 
it's not something not to like, right? It's, it's the awesome path that leads to people enjoying the work you do. Um, and in the context, one of the reasons why we chose Steam is that Steam is one of the more difficult, it's, it's one, I guess maybe it's essentially the most difficult marketplace to influence with money. So it's one of the most level playing fields. It's slowly changing, and as all things have to eventually, um, but it was a surprisingly fair space for a very long time. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I think that there's some balance to be struck between sort of Facebook marketing to identify your users and letting them know that you exist. Um, but the vast majority of what you have to do is all on platform and through Steam. So, you know, they've, they've, they've come up with a lot of tools through to contact curators um, and obviously Let's Plays and sort of like streaming motion is a huge, huge component these days. Um, almost anything that would be super effective is generally also super expensive though. And so the strategies we employed was kind of um, playing a long game and being around for as long as we could handle uh, to build audience um, at whatever rate we were capable of and learn the ropes of growing audience in that process. We actually stream development three times a week and we've been doing so for the better part of four and a half years now. Um, I would say that we've learned a lot in that period of time. Uh, we have a, a small, very loyal base uh, audience and, and a kind of a moderate size kind of layer of audience around them. Um, recommendations are we, we we did our kickstarter our kickstarter was able to get us about 1600 backers that was a start that was people who knew what we were about and people we maintained a conversation with maintained a relationship with you know they say things like you always got to have updates but you really have to be doing this getting people's attention and find you know and, and by being yourself in some ways right finding the people that will like what you have offered and that they stay paying attention and learning the ropes of getting that attention and holding. Facebook ads, though, back to that, though. Facebook ads is probably the cheapest way to start testing ideas, visuals, messages, and to kind of compare them, compare the responses. So you can start getting an idea of there's a body of people out there with particular interests or an affinity for it. that answer your question? <laughs> he's gives he's giving a thumbs up. Great question. It's very uh it's a practical, it's in the trenches question, which is exactly uh what um you know Tomo knows a lot about. So uh, great question. Any others before we close it out here? Um all right, going once, no. going twice, yeah. Go ahead, Tomo. Uh Steam Spy. Back when we started Epic Tavern, Steam Spy was an enormous resource. Something like 95% of the user records were available scrape and analyze and we did a great deal of that it's not steam went from default public to default private accounts so a lot of that information is gone but having access to five percent of the accounts still enough to make like legitimate analysis uh um of of the user base and so i highly recommend kind of taking a look at steam spy looking at games that you think are like yours and seeing how well they do and start reaching out to those developers too. Like, hey, make a game like yours. We should be buddies. 
Great. Feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. Cool. Great. All right. Well, um, well, don't go anywhere. We'll take a picture together. But uh, before then, thank you for teleporting into this World Cast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us in virtual reality, listening to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching in glorious Technicolor on YouTube. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, Twitter at Simulation VR, Facebook and Discord. And if you enjoyed this event, please give us a, give us a five rating in all space before you leave. And if you didn't, please don't share the hate. Uh, then join us next time on our tour for through the metaverse platforms out there, including VR Chat, Engage, Facebook Horizons, and Somnium. So we're going to review all those platforms and tell us what you think next time. Until then, stay plugged, my friends. There we go. <laughs> oh, Tobo, I forgot to uh, I forgot to let you say where is the best place to get in touch with you. I guess uh, if they haven't seen the logo or heard me say hyperkinetic a thousand times, I don't know what to say. But do you want to? Do you have anywhere uh, you'd like them to to go to get in touch with you? Well, you know where we're most active. Uh, we have a pretty active Discord channel for Epic Tavern, and I think you can get there with just Discord.gg/tavern. I like talking about all things at Tavern, storytelling, game development, and game design. Okay, perfect.